Hello and welcome to the Immigration Roundup podcast. My name is Colin Yeo and I'm joined by Sonia Lenigan. We are covering the events of February 2023 this month and we are planning a slightly shorter episode than normal, although you know sometimes these things don't work out quite as we, quite as we intend. Um, and that's partly because um, we think we can get through things relatively quickly. It's partly also because at the time that we are speaking, the illegal migration bill has dropped and we are planning on doing another separate event on that, which if we can work out the tech will will involve live video. Um, but if if we can't work out the tech, may may just be a normal may maybe a normal podcast, we'll see. Um, so that that's 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 what we're aiming to do this month. So if you would like to claim CPD points for um, listening to the podcast and reading the material, head over to Free Movement and sign up as a member. Um, Sonia, before I sort of launch into things, do you just want to say hello? Hi, everyone. Great. So we're covering a few different things. We're covering some stuff on denaturalization. We are covering a few different asylum things. And then we've got a run through of a few cases as well. And um, we're going to kick off the denaturalization by talking specifically about Shamim Begum. And then we're going to sort of talk about a few slightly waffly blog posts that I wrote on the general subject of, of denaturalization afterwards. So leading with um, Shamim Begum's case herself, though, is, is Sonia. Do you want to kick off that one? Yep. So this article is titled Security Tribunal Finds Shamima Begum Was Trafficked, But She Loses Anyway. So this is a special Immigration Appeals Commission known as SIAC decision. Uh, There were a few different arguments and issues, but the main one in this case was that the tribunal found that there was a credible suspicion that she had been trafficked to Syria for the purpose of sexual exploitation. Sajid Javid, who was the Home Secretary at the time, did not consider that at all at the time that he made the decision to strip her of her citizenship. Despite that, the tribunal rejected the submission that the failure to take that into account, i.e. the trafficking dimension, rendered the decision unlawful. Uh, They said that that was on the basis that the power of citizenship deprivation is an incredibly wide one with no explicit requirement to consider issues of trafficking. And the Home Secretary was entitled to focus on national security to the exclusion of everything else. Uh, That is slightly contradicted by the Commission also saying that national security is not an absolute imperative and it does not trump everything else. Um, And they also said at paragraph 260 that it's lawful for a public authority to consider something and decide to give no weight to it. However, that's not what happened here. The Home Secretary didn't consider it at all in making the decision to deprive her of her British citizenship. So presumably this will now proceed to the Court of Appeal and then onwards and onwards. And as you pointed out in your summary, this this one seems likely to end up in Strasbourg. And the reason for that is because of the complex legal issues around justiciability of the European Convention Against Trafficking, I really hate pronouncing that word, Um, state obligations and the meaning and significance of voluntary conduct. Um, So that's all to do with the trafficking dimension to the case, which seems likely to end up in Strasbourg. Thank you very much, Sonia. Um, Yeah, it's quite a troubling, quite a troubling case. And um, yeah, it sort of divides opinion rather, rather sharply. But I I read the... um, I read the decision as being relatively sympathetic in tone, actually. Yep. And I think um, perhaps taking the line that, um, you know, that's not necessarily an outcome that they would have endorsed themselves, but that's not their jurisdiction. You know, they're, they're, they're on judicial review jurisdiction. They couldn't detect an error of law as such. Yeah. I mean, when you read the factual background, it's just 
it's completely horrendous what what happened to her and the failings of you know the UK in allowing it to happen. Yeah, because there were multiple opportunities to stop her. Um, yeah. And the bit that really got me was that the police sending a letter home to her parents via yeah. her. It's just, you know, ridiculous. I mean, honestly, uh, have any of them had children before? Mm, mm. So, well, let's just use that as a, a launching point for, for, for me to talk quickly about a few other blog posts that we, we put out this month as well on sort of similar related subjects. So one of them is a book review by what I thought was a really interesting book by Stephanie de Goya uh, called Before Borders, A Legal and Literary History of Naturalization. And it, it kind of covers like the early modern period. So from about sort of 1603 onwards um, through to the kind of um, 1800s. And what's really interesting about it is, is from a legal point of view, from a lawyer's point of view, is kind of the, the early history of naturalization and how it kind of evolved. And Calvin's case, one of the kind of uh, founding cases of, of British um, nationality law. But then also what I found really interesting about it was was looking at the how how these issues were discussed elsewhere. So in literature, uh, also in political debate to some extent. Um, so looking at people like Locke. Um, and then, yeah, a couple of really, I, I thought, just really intriguing examples of, of books where naturalization kind of is, is specifically addressed, including Robinson Crusoe, um, who, who's um, who's said to naturalize in Brazil and whose father is thought to have naturalized in the UK because he's of German origin. Um, and also um, Frankenstein, um, where there's a sort of specific reference to, to naturalization of um Victor Frankenstein and um, I think his wife as well and so, so just it's a really I, I thought it was a really interesting book and I learned quite a lot from it as well so I just all wanted to, to flag that up and, and recommend it to to people who are interested in the subject um, there's then a couple of blog posts that come out of a kind of um, book chapter that I've been working on for somebody else that probably won't see the light of day for like two years or something so I wasn't quite willing to to, to, to sit on the material for that long, having spent so long putting it together. And one of the blog posts is on denaturalization of bad guys, as I put it slightly colloquially in the um, in the title. Um, bad cases make bad law, the unintended, un, unintended consequences of denaturalizing bad guys. And um, obviously, that's a slightly loaded way of putting it. Um, but we're talking about basically denaturalization based on behavior or based on public good. And what I've tried to do in that blog post is show how all the really bad reforms that we've seen to denaturalization over the last sort of 20 years or so were really specifically addressed to individual cases, looking at Abu Hamza in, in two different important ways that the, the, the law was reformed, looking at a guy that a lot of people won't, won't remember now called David Hicks, an Australian citizen who, who managed to um, claim British citizenship through, through parentage. Um, basically, to get himself out of Guantanamo Bay and was was British for a day, I think. Um, the Algeda case, um, a D four case as well, more leading to slightly less radical but but still bad reforms with the um, Immigration Act two thousand and sixteen, and looking at how you know slightly casually governments have amended the law to 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 enable them to do what they thought at the at the time was the right thing, I guess, but has as a result really undermined the safety really of British citizenship and created this kind of two-tier system that we we have today. Um, the other one is on deception and denaturalization. So this is the other ground for denaturalization in section 40 of the British Nationality Act. And again, trying to look at what's kind of gone on over the last um, sort of 
slightly shorter period perhaps kind of 10 15 years uh the sort of rise and fall of of the nullification process which is a sort of non-statutory um way of taking people's citizenship away for, for previous deception that the supreme court eventually kind of stomped on um and then looking at fraud why it is that certain nationalities seem to get targeted more than others focusing in on albanians and looking at why it is that they seem to have been disproportionately denaturalized um looking at the idea that if you've got a lot of discretion about how you behave that there's a high risk of of discrimination sort of creeping in there and then also looking at some of the academic work on this um Emil Farg for example on morality and and denaturalization the kind of the 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 um the equating of of uh, migrants and morality and uh, a sort of particular hunt for fraud and the the sort of y- y- the, the title of that one deception and naturalization seek and you shall find the point I'm trying to make there is that there's always deception going on of all sorts of different types but it's if you put state resources into detecting it and you you do that in a discretionary way then there's a real risk of, of discrimination arising and you end up you know finding what it is that you look for where you look for it it doesn't mean that that's where it is predominantly necessarily, but that's you know that's where you've looked for it, and that's therefore where you found it. So um, that's kind of quick quick run through of of um, of those blog posts. Do take a look if you are interested, and then um, I think that that then leads us to move on to um, the asylum segment, and I'm kicking off that bit. Um, with a blog post all about the latest immigration statistics, which we always sort of struggle to to deal with on free movement, because the quarterly immigration statistics, I find them really interesting, as, as long-term blog readers will know. I like a nice, colourful chart. Um, but the um, the problem is that, of course, the, when the quarterly stats come out, there's just a huge range of things going on. You know, it's stats covering absolutely every subject. And sometimes we, quite, we sort of zoom out a bit and cover lots of different subjects, and it's a bit bitty. Um, this month, I just zoomed in on the um, asylum stats, essentially, to look at how the Home Office is performing um, in terms of you know, the asylum backlog, which has grown to epic um, proportions, uh, what's going on with arrivals, which have, have, have gone up considerably, um, what's going on with um, small boats, again, a considerable increase, what's going on with resettlements, which is, is not looking so good if you're not um, Ukrainian or from, from Hong Kong, um, modern slavery and trafficking. I think you want to talk about that in a bit, um, Sonia. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I basically... You know, this story that the Home Office has been spinning about, you know, people using the modern slavery system to resist removal isn't really borne out by the statistics as far as we can see. Um, asylum outcomes, you know, really record high numbers for some nationalities and overall 76% of initial decisions in the whole of 2022 were grants of asylum. Although, admittedly, that's on a slightly small sample, smaller than we'd like, because basically so few decisions were made and on certain countries generally. Um, use of detention um, going down again, um, voluntary and uh, enforced removals starting to creep up slightly from the kind of pandemic low, but still at historically very low levels. Total of 489 failed asylum seekers removed in the whole of 2022, as far as these stats say, although they, they do slightly amend the figures um, later sometimes. So um, that the Home Office really does seem to be sort of failing in everything it attempts to do, basically, in the asylum system. But, you know, it's hard to talk about this without thinking about the effect that the, the new legislation might have. And I guess, you know, if you've got a big backlog in the asylum system, one way to deal with it is to scrap the asylum system. And they, you know, that's, that's, what, that's what the government's planning on doing. But whether they really can remove 
literally tens of thousands of asylum seekers when they can barely remove a handful of failed asylum seekers back to the home country is is remains to be seen really so that's my um that's my kind of wrap up of the um the stats and sonia you were going to talk a bit about another major development which is the streamlined asylum process yes um big sigh uh so Obviously, there is the commitment made by the Prime Minister in December last year, I think it was, to clear the backlog of pre-28th of June cases by the end of this year. So the first sort of substantial thing that they've done towards that goal, apart from all the recruitment, is to implement this new streamlined asylum process. So this applies to people who claimed before the 28th of June where they are from Afghanistan, Eritrea, Libya, Syria, and Yemen, and where they've not yet had a substantive interview. And the stated purpose is to allow the Home Office to make grants without the need for an interview or with just a shorter interview needed. So far, so good. That all sounds great. Um, I feel like when the sector was asking for this, we were thinking more of like a nationality check type situation, and then the person is granted. The Home Office had a different idea. They are sending out, I can't remember how many pages the questionnaire is, uh, over 10. Um, And it's in English. It's only been provided in English to people who are from those countries where there are not traditionally a large number of English speakers. Um, It helpfully suggests that people who do not speak, write or understand English can use online translation tools. I mean, Google Translate just about helped me to order a beer in Portuguese when I was in Brazil last week. I don't know how it would get on with this. Otherwise, to ask a friend who understands English, assuming someone has that um, and can help them navigate such a complex list of questions to explain why the person is claiming asylum. I mean, that is hugely concerning. Uh, there are also issues with if um, charities are trying to help. Obviously, you need to be OISC registered if you're going to do anything that crosses over into into advice. And I know OISC have issued some guidance, but the consequences are so severe if you cross that line that really it is a disincentive. I think, you know, for most charities, I imagine they are just helping with extension of time requests and that's kind of it because otherwise you do risk crossing that line into advice. Um, Before the 28th of June last year, I think the preliminary information questionnaire was still in use. So, you know, I wonder how many of these cases will have had uh, a pick returned. Um, And anyone who didn't return a pick back then, odds are that they didn't do it because they didn't understand it and they were unable to access legal assistance. And those are the exact same issues that they're going to encounter with this new questionnaire. Um, As was the case with the preliminary information questionnaire, it comes with a threat that if it's not withdrawn, uh, if it's not returned, then the claim will be withdrawn. However, it's unclear whether they'll actually do that. With the preliminary information questionnaire, they did eventually confirm that they would not treat claims as withdrawn uh, if it wasn't returned, but they haven't done that yet with this. And unless and until they clarify the position, there is a risk that someone could have their claim withdrawn. Um, It's really difficult to see how the creation of additional work is going to assist in reducing the backlog. And obviously, if they do start withdrawing claims, that's just going to mean people need to put in fresh claims. Anecdotally, I've heard that they've been responding to extension of time requests with an additional 10 working days and saying no further extension will be given. That is of no use whatsoever, given the fact that people need legal advice to fill this out and legal aid lawyers are unavailable. I've also heard about the Home Office calling up people 
and asking questions that seem to be these questionnaire questions over the phone, which is obviously also concerning. Um, I have also heard anecdotally about practitioners responding and saying, we have already provided you with all this, this information in the statement. We've already provided you with a detailed statement. Please go look at that. And basically getting a computer says no response. No, you, you must fill out this questionnaire. So this is the legal aid sector is already overstretched and under-resourced. And the Home Office is now insisting that this additional pointless work is carried out. And how is this useful to anyone? Anyway, that's my rant about this over. Um, read the article, keep everyone talking to each other so we can share practice and how we cope with this thing. Extension of time requests just have to be going in over and over again. And I think if the Home Office is refusing to give another extension of time past the 10 days, then, well, we're going to need to see what they say next. But I just can't imagine that they can lawfully treat a claim as withdrawn in that situation. We'll need to see. But this whole thing is a mess and it's so unnecessary. It didn't need to be like this. No, I think that's really important. It's like I, the Home Office probably feel like they can't do anything without us complaining about stuff. Uh, it's like, oh, you said you didn't want interviews and you wanted a simple process and stuff, and this is what it is. Well, it's not, though, is it? It's not. And you can sort of imagine how it might start off as being a, an idea at the Home Office. Well, instead of calling people in for interviews, that takes everybody a lot of time. It's better for us. It's better for them. If they don't, why don't we just send them a simple form? Yeah, great idea. Right, what are we going to put on it? And then just adding more and more stuff to it. And especially where, like you say, when people have already done these um, preliminary information questionnaires and you know, they're just literally having to repeat the same stuff because it's kind of some sort of you know, tick box thing at the home office, then, you know, they've already done the statement. Ah, it's really aggravating. Really, And, aggravating. you know, if that, is, if that is work that's been done within a fixed fee asylum legal aid case, that is work that will be unpaid. Yeah, yeah. And you just, well, lawyers just can't, can't do that they can't be expected to to work for free and that's it you know and that's even if but they are get a lawyer yeah yeah Yeah. and you know but that's why then the knock-on effect is that people can't get a lawyer because people can't afford to work for free it's it's unsustainable sorry i could rant forever about this it's really just so infuriating yeah 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 not a great solution should we say um Okay, so um, moving on to another sort of more general blog post that I was I was putting out that month. So I, I put one out called "Does Ten Year Temporary Refugee Protection Status Breach the Refugee Convention?" I see there's a typo in the title. Now I'm rereading it now. Um, the, the the short answer is yes. Um, although the problem with that is that, and, and you know, this is going to be a really big issue with the new illegal migration bill. The problem is that if a state party breaches the refugee convention it doesn't have any immediate consequences. There's no good enforcement mechanism in the Refugee Convention. Um, There is provision for one state party to take another state party to the International Court of Justice, but it's never been used. The chance of it ever being used are almost zero. Um, And UNHCR only has an advisory capacity under the convention. So, you know, where state parties do breach it, um, you know, arguably or very obviously, then yeah, they can get away with it when it comes down to it. And the the article, I think, um, the the extension to 10 years of refugee leave um, breaches Article 34. It says, the contracting states shall, as far as possible, facilitate the assimilation and naturalization of refugees. They shall, in particular, make every effort to expedite nat- naturalization proceedings and reduce, as far as possible, the charges and costs of such proceedings. So whacking somebody from a five-year to a 10-year route obviously isn't doing that. And, you know, 
also getting a bit ahead of ourselves because we're not supposed to be talking about the illegal migration bill, totally abolishing the asylum process um, and therefore denying people access to status as well. Uh, also, uh, obviously very incompatible with Article 34 of the Convention, even with that kind of, you know, wiggle room type language of facilitate and expedite and, and so on, where where it's ambiguous what it really means. Um, it's, it's clear that it's obviously a breach, but, you know, the, the UK can get away with it, as has Australia in the past, yeah. without formally, you know, um, resigning from the convention and sort of pretending to to, to maintain their commitment to it. So, um, yeah, there's a sort of, if, if you're interested in the issue, um, do take a look at the blog post to kind of walk through of how it works there. But um, like I say, it, it it doesn't just because something is unlawful in international law doesn't mean you can't do it when it comes down to it. There's got to be an enforcement mechanism, as there is with the European Convention on Human Rights, but that's not there with the Refugee Convention, sadly. Right, okay, on to the next issue, which I think, Sonia, you're covering. Yes, so this is new policy, temporary permission to stay for victims of human trafficking. Um, Remember the Nationality and Borders Act? Well, that is still being rolled out, um, And so the Home Office's new policy, Temporary Permission to Stay for Victims of Trafficking and Slavery, was published on the 30th of January this year. It accompanies the new appendix to the Immigration Rules, uh, which was published on the 18th of October 2022 and came into force on the 30th of January. Uh, Someone who is accepted to be a victim of trafficking will now be eligible for leave to remain if they can demonstrate one of three things. The first one is that they need that leave to recover from any physical or psychological harm arising from the relevant exploitation. That's the new bit. Um, So it now must be made clear that the psychological harm um, or physical harm arises from the specific incident of trafficking. It's a new hurdle. Practitioners will need to ensure that medical evidence comments specifically on that link. Um, The National Borders Act limits discretion to grant permission to stay in the scenario. If a person can get assistance in the country in which they're a national, then leave will not be needed. Um, so again, evidence to counter that will, will should be provided. Uh, the second category in which they can be granted leave is to seek compensation in respect of the relevant exploitation. The policy position for this is that in most countries, it would be relatively straightforward for someone to pursue their compensation claim remotely. Um, And then the third one is cooperation with a public authority. Either the victim or the police may ask for permission to stay to assist in investigations or prosecutions relating to exploitation. It must be confirmed that it is necessary for the person to be physically present in the UK to cooperate with the investigation or prosecution. Again, if it's possible for that to be done remotely, then leave will not be granted. Um, And there is no clarification in that guidance in relation to temporary leave being granted as a matter of course for those with a pending asylum claim. That takes me on to the next article, which is for the pre-30th of January cases, um, which is that trafficking uh, trafficking victims should get leave during their asylum claim. The case is um, SSA Ethiopia and SSHD, And the upper tribunal confirmed that a recognised victim of trafficking who is also seeking asylum, partly fearing re-trafficking on return as well as political persecution, should have been granted leave while their asylum claim was pending. That is in line with KTT. All the details are in the article. 
Um, the tribunal also clarified that the asylum claim does not need to be based entirely on fear of retrafficking to get that leave, as long as that is one of the issues that have been put forward. Um, and then the article just concludes with a reminder that discretionary leave decisions made before 30th of January this year are still in existence, and these are challengeable under version five of the discretionary leave policy. Um, so if you have a client who's in that situation, then it may be possible to seek leave with reference to KTT. Have a look at the article. It's all set out there. Very useful. Thank you very much, Sonia. Right. We're going to move on to go over a few cases um, fairly quickly, but a bit I'm doing the first one and I, I can't really resist going over some of the facts of this one. So I think the legal proposition, it's fair to say, is not that surprising or radical. Um, as you can perhaps tell from the title, immigration officers don't have to corroborate your story. So claimant in this case, he arrives as a visitor, he's from Brazil, arrives as a visitor in November 2021, saying he's going to visit for 10 days. Um, in February 2022, an enforcement visit to his address um, led the immigration officers to suspect he might be working. So he's interviewed in his bedroom. Um, immigration officers notice a logbook naming him as the registered keeper of a motorcycle acquired eight days after his arrival. A motorbike, helmet, and boots are nearby. None of this is necessarily fatal, obviously. You just wanted a motorbike. Um, his mobile phone was examined and found to continue and contain an app for delivery workers and a photograph of him wearing the helmet and standing by the motorbike. He was observed moving his bed quilt to cover up some delivery clothing. So it's not looking good for him. Um, he denies working, though, um, says that um, had problems with insurance, said that it was used for a friend and so on, and, and seems to have argued slightly optimistically that you know basically the immigration officers should have done more to kind of corroborate his story should have contacted people on his behalf and so on to to back it up but the court disagrees and so he loses so that's the end of that one Sonia you're covering the next one I think Yes, yeah, so this is no damages for unlawful no recourse to public funds policy. The case is Home Office and ASY. So initially in the county court, the claimants had uh, successfully established an entitlement to damages for breach of Article 3 based on the Home Office's failure to implement a Article 3 compliance system for dealing with NRPF applications, the change of conditions applications. Damages were awarded in the county court, and so the Home Office appealed that to the High Court and then unfortunately, the High Court said that there was no breach of Article 3 in respect of the particular individuals in this case, essentially saying that at no stage did these claimants suffer destitution to the point of inhuman or degrading treatment. And when they applied to have the condition lifted, their requests were granted. And so on that basis, uh, damages were refused. I don't know what's happening with that case, if they're going to try to appeal or what, but that's where we're at with that one. Hmm. Right. One from me. Um, so this is differential treatment of Ukrainian and Afghan applications justified on national security grounds. The case is A, B against Secretary of State for the Home Department. And it's a case where somebody who had worked as a prosecutor in Afghanistan and attempted to make an application to the UK um, wasn't able to submit biometrics, I think, uh, rather understandably complained that she was being discriminated against because had she been a Ukrainian national, she wouldn't have um, she wouldn't have had to provide those um, um, details. Basically, and the application would have been valid. And you can absolutely understand where she's coming from with that because you know clearly Ukrainians with a kind of facilitated visa application process and uncapped visa scheme and so on are being treated far more preferably compared to other nationalities, including Afghanistan. 
but but the court you know says basically um, that's not unlawful discrimination is justified on national security grounds so the case was unsuccessful unfortunately Sonia I think you're on the next one Yes, so this is not all procedural errors need to be remitted, says the upper tribunal. Um, I find this sort of stuff really interesting, so I would definitely recommend going and reading the article, but I'm just going to go through the highlights here. The case is Begum remaking or remittal. Um, It was in the upper tribunal. And in a nutshell, essentially, there is divergence between the practice directions and practice statements about how the upper tribunal should uh, exercise its discretion when. whether or not to decide cases itself, where an appeal against the FTT's decision has been allowed. Uh, The upper tribunal has confirmed that not every finding of unfairness needs to be remitted. Uh, They had regard to the fact that Ms. Begum would be deprived of a two-stage decision-making process, which is just so important. Uh, This was only a factor to be weighed in the balance. It was also necessary to consider the nature of the error of law, the effect of the unfairness on the decision as a whole, the nature and extent of the unfairness as part and parcel of the exercise of discretion as to whether the matter should be remitted. So the upper tribunal decided that in this case they would retain the appeal. Yeah, this sort of thing makes it really, really challenging to know how to prepare for an upper tribunal hearing because you don't know whether the tribunal is basically going to say, yes, there's an error and we're going to go and re-decide the case right now. Or they're going to say, yes, we're going to retain it. If there's an error, we're going to retain it, but adjourn to another day or whether they're going to send it back to the first tier. And it's just, it makes it really, really hard. You can kind of guess, but you you can't guess with 100% accuracy. And yeah, I remember still have nightmares about one of my worst experiences in the the upper tribunal where I got I called it wrong and I I got literally shouted at I think by somebody fairly old school in the upper tribunal um for not having my witnesses with me I said well yeah actually getting your witnesses to court on the off chance that the the upper tribunal is going to try and re-decide something there and then does seem a bit harsh frankly um that was quite a long time ago um, that sort of uh sort of I was gonna say happy to report in the sense that you know things have changed but it does make me feel old saying that as well anyway right waffling on Sonia <laughs> over to you again so yeah I think this is the last one and it's more bad news from the upper tribunal for extended family members of EU citizens uh, I think Ian Halliday wrote this one and I really enjoyed reading it I have to say um the case is Sadika other family members EU exit Bangladesh it's another upper tribunal case and very succinct summary at the top of it. What happens when you accidentally apply for an EU settlement scheme family permit when you meant to apply for an EEA family permit under the Immigration EEA Regulations 2016? The answer, you are deprived of the benefit of the EU settlement scheme and the EU withdrawal agreement. And, you know, that sums it up, basically. Um, And as Ian points out at the end, you know, this is a harsh result. The system is not transparent and simple. We all know and loathe Appendix EU. It is an absolute horror show to use. Um, The upper tribunal has also had a go at it recently. The high court has ruled that certain aspects of it breached the withdrawal agreement. You know, this is, yeah, it it is very, very harsh. However, that is what has been decided. Yeah, I agree with you about Ian's style is um, very sort of um, concise, dry, but enjoyable as well at the same time. So it's always good to read your stuff. (laughs) Yeah, even if the subject matter is uh, is not what we might hope. Terrible, Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, I think that pretty much wrapped things up. Wraps things up for this month. Although there was a sort of small good news thing that we were going to try and do, <laughs> wasn't this on you? Do you want, do you want just, to quickly say that and say goodbye? 
Yeah, just because it's been, you know, such a horror show of a month and this episode, I don't think there's been any good news. Uh, just because I was covering a case on NRPF um, earlier, I was commenting that there has been some positive news on NRPF, um, which was, I think, in the last week or so, Um DPG, Ben and Munoir Unity Project, and I think maybe Praxis or Ramfell have been working on a case in relation to um, how disability is considered by the Home Office when they are looking at these change of conditions applications. And that has been successful, and we will cover it next month. And But do have a look on DPG's website in the meantime, because they've got an in-depth article. I think that case was actually conceded, so they've got the order in there as well. I can't. I can't let it pass. Acronym tastic. So, oh, NRPF, sorry. It's no Did I say no recourse to public funds, funds earlier? Uh, you probably I feel did. like I'd already covered it earlier. Uh, the DPG <laughs> is Dayton Pierce Glynn, and I, I Ramfell. I don't even know what Ramfell stands for. Well, that's yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. Refugee and migrants. I'll maybe try and introduce the um, the music to Faders Out at this point or something <laughs> like that. Sonia. Well, thanks very much, everybody, for, for listening. And we'll be back. Well, I was going to say we'll be back next month. But um, depending on when you listen to this, listen out for um, our coverage of the Illegal Migration Bill, um, which will be a re- released around the same time as this podcast. Okay, thank you for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.